Chapter 51, Part 3 of The Reason Why. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. The Reason Why by Robert Kemp Philp. Chapter 51, Part 3. Over the brows that mark the intellectual front of that due form, there fall the auburn locks of youth, or the grey hair of venerable age. Each of those hairs is curiously organised. If you take a branch of a tree and cut it across, you will find curious markings caused by vessels of various structure, all necessary to the existence of the plant. In the centre will be found either a hollow tube or a space occupied by a soft substance called pith. Each hair of your head is as curiously formed as the branch of a tree, and in a manner not dissimilar, though its parts are so minute that the unaided eye cannot discern them. Every hair has a root, just as a tree has, and through this root it receives its nourishment. As the vessel which feed a plant are always proportionate to the size of the plant itself, how fine must be those vessels which form the roots of the hair, being in proportion to the size of the hair, which in itself so small that the eye cannot see its structure. The hair is, in fact, an animal plant, growing upon the body in much the same manner that plants grow upon the surface of the earth. But how does this hair grow? Not alone by the addition of matter at its roots, pushing up and elongating its stem. Nourishment passes up through its whole length and is deposited upon its end just as the nourishment of a tree is deposited upon its extreme branches. If, after having your hair cut, you were to examine its ends by the microscope, you would discover the abrupt termination left by the scissors. But allow the hair to grow, and then examine it, and you will discover that it grows from its point, which, in comparison with its former state, is perfect and fine. The reason why the beard is so hard is that the ends of the hair are continually being shaved off. The hair of the beard, if allowed to grow, would become almost as soft as the hair of the head. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Matthew 11 But why is man's head thus covered with hair? For precisely the same reason that a house is thatched, to keep the inmates warm. We might add also to give beauty to the edifice, but as beauty is a conventional quality, and if men were without it they would consider themselves quite as handsome as they do now, we will not enlarge upon the argument. Our bald-headed friends, too, might have reason to complain of such a partial hypothesis. The brain is the great organ upon which the health, the welfare and the happiness of the system depends. The skull, therefore, may be regarded as analogous to the strong box, the iron chest in which the merchant keeps his treasure, there is no point at which the brain can be touched to its injury, without first doing violence to the skull. Even the spinal cord runs down the back through a tunnel or tube, formed in a number of strong bones, so closely and firmly jointed together that they are commonly termed the backbone. Look at eyebrows. What purpose do they fulfil? Precisely that of a shed or arch placed over a window to shelter it from rain. But for the eyebrows, the perspiration would frequently run from the brow into the eyes and obscure the sight. A man walking in a shower of rain would scarcely be able to see, 
and a mariner in a storm would find a double difficulty in braving the tempest. Now we come to the eye, which is the window of the soul's abode, and what a window! How curiously constructed, how wisely guarded! In the eyelashes as well as the eyebrows we see the hair fulfilling a useful purpose, differing from any already described. The eyelashes serve to keep cold winds, dust, and too bright sun from injuring or entering the windows of the body. When we walk against the east wind, we bring the tips of our eyelashes together, and in that way exclude the cold air from the surface of the eye, and in the same manner we exclude the dust and modify the light. The eyelashes, therefore, are like so many sentries, constantly moving to and fro, protecting a most important organ from injury. The eyelids are the shutters by which the windows are opened and closed, but they also cleanse the eye, keeping it bright and moist. There are, moreover, in the lids of each eye or window, little glands or springs by which a clear fluid is formed and supplied for cleansing the eye. The eye is placed in a socket of the skull, in which it has free motion, turning right or left, up or down, to serve the purpose of the inhabitant of the dwelling. Of the structure of the eye itself we will not say much, for the engravings will afford a clearer understanding than a lengthy written description. But we would have you examine the formation of the iris of the living eye, the ring which surrounds the pupil. Hold a light to it and you will find that the iris will contract and diminish the pupil. Withdraw the light and the iris will relax and the pupil expand thus regulating the amount of light. The images of external objects are formed upon the retina of the eye, a thin membrane spread out upon the extremity of a large nerve, which proceeds immediately to the brain, and forms the telegraphic cord by which information is given to the mind of everything visible going on within the range of sight. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Habakkuk 1. Now think for a few moments upon the wonderful structure of those windows of the body. Can you fancy in the walls of your house a window which protects itself, cleanses itself and turns in any direction at the mere will of the tenant, and when that tenant is oppressed by excess of light, draws its own curtain and gives him ease, and when he falls asleep closes its own shutters and protects itself from the cold and dust of night, and the instant he awakes in the morning, opens, cleanses itself with a fluid which it has prepared during the night and kept in readiness, and repeats this routine of duty day after day for half a century without becoming impaired. Such nevertheless is the wonderful structure of the window of the body, the eye. In some scientific works that have recently been published, curious investigations have been made known. It has been shown that the eye is impressed momentarily as a photographic plate is impressed by the rays of the sun. But the photography of the eye has this extraordinary quality, that one image passes away and another takes its place immediately, without confusion or indistinctness. But the most wonderful assertion of all is, that under the excitement of memory, these photographic images are restored, and that when, in our mind's eye, we see the image of some dear departed friend, the retina really revives an image which once fell upon its sensitive surface, and which image has been stored up for many years in the sacred portfolio of its affections. 
Another extraordinary assertion is one which comes supported by a degree of authenticity that entitles it to consideration. It is said that the eye of a dead man retains an impression of the last picture that fell upon the faithful retina. Dr. Sandford of America examined the eye of a man named Beardley, who had been murdered at Auburn, and he published in the Boston Atlas the following statement. At first we suggested the saturation of the eye in a weak solution of atrophine, which evidently produced an enlarged state of the pupil. On observing this, we touched the end of the optic nerve with the extract, when the eye instantly became protuberant. We now applied a powerful lens, and discovered in the pupil the rude, worn-away figure of a man, with a light coat, beside whom was a round stone, standing or suspended in the air, with a small handle stuck in the earth. The remainder was debris, evidently lost from the destruction of the optic nerve, and its separation from the mother brain. Had we performed the operation, when the eye was entire in the socket, with all its powerful connection with the brain, there is not the least doubt, but that we should have detected the last idea and impression made on the mind and eye of the unfortunate man. The picture would evidently be entire, and perhaps we should have had the contour, or better still the exact figure of the murderer. The last impression on the brain before death is always more terrible from fear than any other cause, and figures impressed on the pupil more distinct, which we attribute to the largeness of the optic nerve, and its free communication with the brain. Whether the supposition, which seems to be supported by the experiment above detailed, be correct or not, it is in no sense more wonderful than the facts which are already known respecting this curious and perfect organ. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. Ecclesiastes 5 the nose is given us for two purposes, to enable us to respire and to smell. As odours rise from the surface of the earth, the cup or the funnel of the nose is turned down to meet them. In the nostrils, hair again serves a useful purpose. It not only warms the air which enters the nostrils, but it springs out from all sides and forms an intersecting net, closing the nostrils against dust and the intrusion of small insects. If by any means, as when taking a sharp sniff, foreign matters enter the nostrils, the nose is armed with a set of nerves which communicate the fact to certain muscles, and the organs of respiration unite with those muscles to expel the intruding substances. In this action, the diaphragm, or the muscle which divides the abdomen from the chest, is pressed down, the lungs are filled with air, the passage by which that air would otherwise escape through the mouth is closed up, and then all at once, with considerable force, the air is pressed through the nostrils, to free them from the annoying substance. So great is the force with which this action takes place, that the passage into the mouth is generally pushed open, occasioning the person in whom the action takes place to cry, Chuh! and thus is formed what is termed a sneeze. As with the eye, so with the nose. Innumerable nerves are distributed over the lining membrane, and these nerves are connected with larger nerves passing to the brain, through which everything relating to the sense of smell is communicated. The nose acts like a custom-house officer to the system. It is highly sensitive to the odour of most poisonous substances. It readily detects hemlock, henbane, monk's hood, 
and the plants containing prussic acid. It recognises the foetid smell of drains and warns us not to breathe the polluted air. The nose is so sensitive that air containing a two hundred thousandth part of bromine vapour will instantly be detected by it. It will recognise the one million three hundred thousandth part of a grain of otto of roses or the thirteen millionth part of a grain of musk. It tells us in the mornings that our bedrooms are impure. It catches the first fragrance of the morning air and conveys to us the invitation of the flowers to go forth into the fields and inhale their sweet breath. To be led by the nose has hitherto been used as a phrase of reproach, but to have had a good nose and to follow its guidance is one of the safest and shortest ways to enjoyment of health. The mouth answers the fourfold purpose of the organ of taste, of sound, of mastication and of breathing. In all of these operations except in breathing, the various parts of the mouth are engaged. In eating we use the lips, the tongue and the teeth. The teeth serve the purpose of grinding the food. The tongue turns it during the process of grinding and delivers it up to the throat for the purposes of the stomach when sufficiently masticated. The lips serve to confine the food in the mouth and assist in swallowing it, and there are glands underneath the tongue and in the sides of the mouth which pour in a fluid to moisten the food, and so watchful are those glands of their duty that the mere imagination frequently causes them to act. Their fluid is required to modify the intensity of different flavours and condiments in which man with his love of eating will indulge. Thus, when we eat anything very acid, as a lemon, or anything very irritating as cayenne pepper. The effect thereof upon the sensitive nerves of the tongue is greatly modified by a free flow of saliva into the mouth. And if we merely fancy the taste of any such things, those glands are so watchful that they will immediately pour out their fluid to mitigate the supposed effect. I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool. Matthew 5 In speaking we use the lips, the teeth, the tongue, and the chest supplies air, which being controlled in its emission by a delicate apparatus at the mouth of the windpipe, causes the various sounds which we have arranged into speech, and by which under certain laws we are enabled to understand each other's wants, participate in each other's emotions, express our loves, our hopes, our fears, and glean those facts, the accumulation of which constitutes knowledge, enhances the happiness of man, and elevates him in its ultimate results above the lower creatures to which the blessing of speech is denied. The curious structure of the tongue and the organs of speech would fill a very interesting volume. The tongue is unfortunately much abused, not only by those who utter foul words, and convert the blessing of speech, which should improve and refine into a source of wicked and profane language, but it constantly remonstrates against the abuse of food, and the use of things which are not only unnecessary for the good of our bodies, but prejudicial to their health. When the body is sufficiently fed, the tongue ceases its relish, and derives no more satisfaction from eating, but man contrives a variety of inventions to whip the tongue up to an unnatural performance of its duty. And thus we not only overeat, but eat things that have no more business in our stomachs than have the stones that we walk upon. 
can we wonder then that disease is so prevalent and that death calls for many of us so soon that wonderful essence the soul of man rises above all finite knowledge its wonders and powers will never probably be understood until when in a future state of existence the grandest of all mysteries shall be explained when we talk of the brain we speak of that which tis easy to comprehend as the organ or the seat of the mind when we speak of the mind we have greater difficulty in comprehending the meaning of the term we employ but when we speak of the soul we have reached a point which defies our understanding because our knowledge is limited the brain may be injured by a blow the mind may be pained by a disagreeable sight or offended by a harsh word but the soul can only be influenced secondarily through the mind which is primarily affected by the organs of the material senses thus the happiness or the misery of the soul depends to a very great extent upon the proper fulfilment of the duties of the senses which are the servants of the soul over which the mind presides as the steward who meditates between the employer and the employed the ear which is taught to delight in sweet sounds and in pure language is a better servant of the master soul than one which delights not in music and which listens with approbation or indifference to the oaths of the profane the eye which rejoices in the beauties of nature and in scenes of domestic happiness and love is a more faithful servant than one that delights in witnessing scenes of revelry dissipation and strife the nose which esteems the sweet odour of flowers or the life-giving freshness of the pure air is more dutiful to his master than one that rejects not the polluted atmosphere of neglected dwellings the mouth which thirsts for morbid gratification of taste is more worthless than one which is contented with wholesome viands and ruled by the proper instincts of its duty who that can understand the wonderful structure of the tongue and the complicated mechanism of the organs of speech and of hearing could be found to take pleasure in the utterance of oaths and of words of vulgar meaning were those beautiful cords that like threads of silk are woven into the muscular texture of the mouth and along with the essence of life travels with the quickness of thought to do the bidding of the will were they given for no higher use than to sin against god who gave them and upon whose mercy their existence every moment depends out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing my brethren these things ought not so to be james three the actions of the senses must necessarily affect the mind which is the head steward of the soul and the soul becomes rich in goodness or poor in sin in proportion as the stewardship held by his many servants is rightly or wrongfully fulfilled as in an establishment where the servants are not properly directed and ruled they often gain the ascendancy and the master has no power over them so with man when he gives himself up to sensual indulgences the soul becomes the slave of the senses the master is controlled by the servant with regard to the mechanism of motion let us take the case of a man who is walking a crowded thoroughfare and we shall see how active are all the servants of the soul under the influence of the mind he walks in a given direction but for the act of volition in the mind not a muscle would stir the eye is watching his footsteps there is a stone in his path the eye informs the mind the mind communicates with the brain and the nerves stimulate the muscles of the leg to lift the foot a little higher 
or turn it on one side and the stone is avoided the eye alights on a familiar face and the mind remembers that the eye has seen that face before the man goes on thinking of the circumstance under which he saw that person and partially forgets his walk and the direction of his steps but the nerves of volition and motion unite to keep the muscles up to their work and he walks on without having occasion to think continually i must continue walking he has not to make an effort to lift his leg along between each interval of meditation he walks and meditates the while presently a danger approaches him from behind the eye sees it not knows no more in fact than if it were dead but the ear sounds the alarm tells the man by the rumbling of a wheel and the tramp of horses feet that he is in danger and then the nerves putting forth their utmost strength whip the muscles up to the quick performance of their duty the man steps out of the way of danger and is saved he draws near to a sewer which is vomiting forth its poisonous exhalations the eye is again unconscious it cannot see the poison lurking in the air the ear too is helpless it cannot bear witness to the presence of that enemy to life but the nose detects the noxious agent and then the eye points out the direction of the sewer and guides his footsteps to a path where he may escape the injurious consequences a clock strikes the ear informs him that it is the hour of an appointment the nerves stimulate the muscles again and he is hastened onward he does not know the residence of his friend but his tongue asks for him and his ear makes known the reply he reaches the spot sits rests the action of the muscles is stayed the nerves are for a time at rest the blood which has flown freely to feed the muscles while they were working goes more steadily through the arteries and veins and the lungs which had been purifying the blood in its course partake of the temporary rest i am but a little child i know not how to go out or come in one kings three let us remember that there are two sets of muscles acting in unison with each other to produce the various motions they are known by the general terms of flexors and extensors the first enable us to bend the limbs the other to bring the limbs back to their former position the flexors enable us to close the hand the extensors to open it again the flexors enable us to raise the foot from the ground the extensors set the foot down again in the place desired consider for a moment the nicety with which the powers of these muscles must be balanced and the harmony which must subsist between them in their various operations when we are closing the hand if the extensor muscles did not gradually yield to the flexors if they gave up their hold all at once the hand instead of closing with gentleness and ease would be jerked together in a sudden and most uncomfortable manner if in such a case you were to lay your hand with its back upon the table and wish to close the hand the fingers would fall down upon the palm suddenly like the lid of a box again consider how awkward it would be in such a case our walk through the streets would become a series of jumps and jerks when a man had raised his foot after it had been jerked up there it would stand fixed for a second before the opposite muscles could put on their power to draw it down again this case is not at all suppositious there is a derangement frequently observed in horses in which one set of muscles becomes injured and we may see horses suffering from this ailment 
trotting along with only one of their legs jerking up much higher than the others, and set down again with difficulty, just in the manner described. It is also to be observed that very nice proportions must exist between the sizes of the muscles and the sizes of the bones. If this were not the case, our motions, instead of being firm and steady, would be all shaky and uncertain. In old persons the muscles become weak and relaxed, hence there is a tendency in the movements of the aged to fall. As it were, together, the head is no longer erect, the body bends, the knees totter, and the arms lean towards the body as for support. In the child a somewhat similar state of thing exists. The muscles have not been properly developed, nor have they been brought sufficiently under the control of the nervous system. The child, therefore, totters and tumbles about, and it is not until it has stumbled and tumbled some hundreds of times in its little history that the muscles have become strong enough to fulfil their office, or have been brought sufficiently under the control of the nervous system to perform well the various duties required from them. In all these things we recognise the perfection of the divine works. We are apt, too apt, to overlook this perfection, because it prevails in everything but by speculating upon what inconveniences we might suffer, were not things ordained as they are, we obtain most convincing evidences of divine goodness and wisdom. Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, The morning cometh, and also the night. If ye will inquire, inquire ye. Return, come. Isaiah 21 Having taken this view of the muscular system of the external man, let us turn our attention to the muscles of the internal organs. The muscles of which we have been speaking are called the voluntary muscles, because we have them under our own control. They are subject to the influences of our will. But there is the other set of muscles. What are they? We talk of the beating or of the palpitation of the heart. But what is it that causes the heart to beat? You cannot, if you wish it, make your heart beat more quickly or more slowly. Place your finger on your pulse and notice the degree of rapidity with which its pulsations follow. Now think that you should like to double the frequency of those pulsations. Say to the heart with your inner voice that you wish it to beat 120 times in a minute instead of 60. It does not obey you. It does not appreciate your command. Now place your finger on the table and your watch by the side of your hand and tell your finger to beat 60 times in a minute, or 100 times, or 150 times, or 200 times, and the finger will obey you, because it is moved by muscles which are subject to the will, while the heart is composed of muscles which are not subject to the will. Why should this be? Why should man have the power to regulate his finger and not to regulate his heart? For the sustentation of our bodies, it is needful that the blood should ever be in circulation. If the heart were to cease beating only for three or four minutes, perhaps less, life would be extinct. In this short time, the whole framework of man, beautiful in its proportions, perfect in its parts, would pass into the state of dead matter and would simply wait the decay that follows death. The eye would become dull and glazed the lips would turn blue, the skin would acquire the coldness of clay, love, hope, joy would all cease, the sweetest, the fondest ties would be broken, flowers might bloom and yield their fragrance, but they would be neither seen nor smelt, 
the sun might rise in its brightest splendour, yet the eye would not be sensitive to its rays. The rosy-cheeked child might climb the paternal knee, but there, stiff, cold, without joy or pain or emotion of any kind, unconscious as a block of marble, would sit the man whose heart for a few moments had ceased to beat. How wise, then, and how good of God, that he has not placed this vital organ under our own care! How sudden would be our bereavements, how frequent our deaths, how sleepless our nights, and how anxious our days, if we had to keep our own hearts at work, and death the penalty of neglect! And yet before we were born, until we reached life's latest moment, through days of toil and nights of rest, even in the moments of our deepest sin against the God, who at the time is sustaining us, our hearts beat on, never stopping, never wearying, never asking rest. This brings us to another reflection. Our arms get weary, our legs falter from fatigue, the mind itself becomes overtaxed, and all our senses fall to sleep. The eye sees not, the ear is deaf to sound, the sentinels that surround the body, the nerves of touch, are all asleep. You may place your hand upon the brow of the sleeping man, and he feels it not. Yet unseen, unheard, without perceptible motion, or the slightest jar to mar the rest of the sleeper, the heart beats on and on and on. As his sleep deepens, the heart slackens its speed, that his rest may be the more sound. He has slept for eight hours, and the time approaches for his awakening. But is the heart weary, that heart which has toiled through the long and sluggard night? No. The moment the waking sleeper moves his arm, the heart is aware that a motion has been made. The effort and exercise are about to begin. The nerves are all arousing to action. The eyes turn in their sockets. The head moves upon the neck. The sleeper leaves his couch, and the legs are once more called upon to bear the weight of the body. Blood is the food of the eye, the food of the ear, of the foot, the hand, and every member of the frame. While they labour they must be fed, that is the condition of their life, the source of their strength. The heart, therefore, so far from seeking rest, is all fresh and vigorous for the labours of the day, and proceeds to discharge its duty so willingly that we do not even know of the movements that are going on within us. Awake up, my glory! Awake, psaltery and harp, I myself will wake early. Psalm 57 Thus we have seen the difference between the voluntary and the involuntary muscles, and we have perceived the goodness of our Creator in not entrusting to our keeping the control of an organ so vital to life as the heart. But the heart is not the only organ which thus works unseen and unfelt. There are the lungs and the muscles of the chest, the stomach and other parts occupying the abdomen, together with all those muscular filaments which enter into the structure of the coats and valves of the blood vessels, and which assist to propel the blood through the system. All these are at work at every moment of man's life, and yet, so perfect is this complicated machinery, that we really do not know, except by theory, what is going on within us. During the time that the sleep has been at rest, the stomach has been at work digesting the food which was last eaten. Then the stomach has passed the macerated food into the alimentary canal. The liver has poured out its secretion and produced certain changes in the condition of the dissolved food. And the lacteals, 
of which there may be many thousands, perhaps millions, have been busy sucking up those portions of the food which they know to be useful to the system, while they have rejected all those useless and noxious materials upon which the liver, like an officer of health, had set his mark as unfitting for the public use. This busy life has gone on uninterruptedly. Every member of that body, every worker in that wonderful factory, has been unremitting in its duty, and yet the owner, the master, has been asleep, and wakes up finding every bodily want supplied. Notwithstanding that much has already been said of the wonders that pertain to the eye, it is not yet being considered as the seat of tears, those mute but eloquent utterers of the sorrows of the heart, beautiful tear, whether lingering upon the brink of the eyelid, or darting down the furrows of the careworn cheek. Thou art sublime in thy simplicity, great because of thy modesty, strong from thy very weakness, offspring of sorrow, who will not own thy claim to sympathy, who can resist thy eloquence, who can deny mercy when thou pleadest. Every tear represents some indwelling sorrow preying upon the mind and destroying its peace. The tear comes forth to declare the inward struggle and to plead a truth against further strife. How meet that the eye should be the seat of tears, where they cannot occur unobserved, but blending with the beauty of the eye itself, must command attention and sympathy. Whenever we behold a tear, let our kindliest sympathies awake. Let it have a sacred claim upon all that we can do to succour and comfort under affliction. What rivers of tears have flown, excited by the cruel and perverse ways of man. War has spread its carnage and desolation, and the eyes of windows and orphans have been suffused with tears. Intemperance has blighted the homes of millions, and weeping and wailing have been incessant. A thousand other evils which we may conquer have given birth to tears enough to constitute a flood, a great tide of grief. Suppose we prize this little philosophy, and each one determined never to excite a tear in another, watching the eye as the telegraph of the mind within. Let us observe it with anxious regard, and whether we are moved to complaint by the existence of supposed or real wrongs, let the indication of the coming tear be held as a sacred truce to unkindly feeling, and our efforts be devoted to the substitution of smiles for tears. Who is as the wise man, and who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. Ecclesiastes 8 There is only one other matter to which we think it necessary to allude. Before we pass, to the concluding section of our work. It has been said that snow which is white keeps the earth warm, that white as a colour is cool, and that black absorbs heat. These assertions may appear to be contradictory, and, taken in connection with the fact of the blackness of the skin of negroes in hot climates, may at a first glance be considered unsatisfactory. They are, however, perfectly reconcilable, and that too without the slightest evasion of the real bearing of the asserted facts. White snow is warm on account of its texture, which, being woolly, forms a layer of non-conducting substance over the surface of the earth, and keeps in its warmth, 
white clothing worn as a garment consisting of a thin material is cool because the white colour turns back the rays of the sun that fall upon it swan's down although white being a non-conductor would be warm because though it would reflect the light and heat it would confine and accumulate the heat of the body the black skin of the negro is a living texture and is not subject to the same laws that govern dead matter the skin of the negro is largely provided with cells which secrete a fatty matter that acts as a non-conductor of the external heat and also a much larger number of perspiratory glands that exist in the skins of europeans the perspiration cools the blood and carries off the internal heat while the oily matter gives a shining surface to the skin and reflects the heat to which the fatty matter presents itself as a non-conductor we see therefore that there are two express provisions for the cooling of the negro's skin independent of the colour the skin of the eskimo who inhabits a cold country is white though it might be supposed that a black skin would best conduce to the warmth of his body but the eskimo has underneath his skin a thick coating of fat by which the internal heat of the body is prevented from escaping the resume of the subjects embodied in the form of question and answer in the previous pages will serve to impress the more important truths upon the mind of the reader while it has enabled us to fill up many omissions necessitated by the arbitrary form of catechetical composition ask now the beasts and they shall teach thee and the fowls of the air and they shall tell thee job 12 End of chapter 51, part 3